0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Land of Hope podcast. Come with us this week as we plant our feet in the Land of Hope. We're gonna continue in Acts 17. Uh, we've been going through Acts for, we are, we are coming up on two years. Um, and usually in the summer, we would take a break and do something called Rooted Summer, where we all read through the same passage multiple times a week. But because we have been in Acts and we've been really, really digging in, I didn't want to interrupt that. So that's why this summer we're going to focus on telling the stories and we're going to keep going with Acts throughout the summer. Amen. So um, I just want to give us like a quick recap so we know where we're coming from. Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke are a team that are moving together to bring the gospel to the world. So um, I even had to look at this map for a minute today because I missed last week and make sure that I knew where we were. So um, they've been in Philippi. So in Traz, they picked up Luke, okay, Luke the physician, Luke who was writing Acts, and they've come to Philippi. And then last week we heard how they were in Thessalonica and how the Thessalonians in the synagogue there received the gospel eagerly is what it says. So, yay, points for the team. Um, And then what happens is, as they keep sharing the Gospels, this is, I'm I'm summarizing the beginning of chapter 17, as they keep sharing the Gospel, the Jews in those regions who are, um, who believe that talking about Jesus is heresy, want Paul to get out, and they're kind of pursuing him. And so what happens is, is Luke escorts Paul down to Athens and Silas and Timothy stay in this region where they had been sharing the gospel, okay? Now, why would Silas and Timothy be the two that stay with these people who are kind of mad at Paul? Well, Silas and Timothy are the two people in this team other than Paul, who makes everybody angry, um, the only other two in this team who have a Jewish background, Right, So they would be good people to be with the Jews of the synagogues in this area. Luke moves along, gets Paul down to Athens. But Luke at this time, he is not an evangelist. Luke is part of the team, but he's not the one doing the talking. And so when we're talking about who's going to evangelize in Athens, we're definitely not talking about Luke at this point. But also keep in mind that Paul hasn't been sent to Athens to evangelize. They say, we we need to send him to the edge of the sea, to the end of the sea. In other words, get Paul as far away as possible. So that's why he lands in Athens from Thessalonica. They're trying to get him far, far away from where any Jews from the Jewish synagogues who don't like him can find him or will be near him. Okay, so that's why Paul is in Athens. It's not because he's like, you know what would be the next great place to tell about Jesus? He's just trying to get the heck out of Dodge and be safe. Okay, while Silas and Timothy stay up north. Must have been really hard for him to do that. So let's pick it up in verse 16. It says, now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he observed that the city was full of idols. Now, Athens had once been the center of the Greek world. Athens represented the height of culture and language and history and art, so much so that things that happened in the 3rd and 4th BC there, we still put up some of the greatest works of art or literature in human history, right? I mean, they have stood the test of time. So Athens, when Rome took over the Greek world, Athens remained almost like a sovereign state where Rome said, technically we're in charge of you, but we're going to allow you to still govern yourself and All of your institutions as they are can stay as they are because it's like the crown jewel, right? And Rome was smart enough not to mess with that. So Athens is the height of Greek art, philosophy, religion, and science. It is a New York. It is a Paris. It is a Vienna, okay? So when we're talking about Athens, we're talking about very, very cultured people. So Paul's friends are up north. He's waiting for them in Athens. And we can imagine that he spent his days walking the city, uh, seeing the sights, possibly. There's temples and art and all sorts of things. Because remember, Paul's also a Roman citizen. So he's not completely wide-eyed and (laughs) um, naive in this world. But we kind of understand that it was not his purpose for his team to be away from his team in order to evangelize Athens, right? We, in the New Testament world so far, there are no lone wolves. We do not go alone. We evangelize with a team, right? There's, there's, they're always two by two. They always have a partner with them. And Paul, at this point, I think it's possible actually, and excuse me for misrepresenting, but I believe maybe Luke took him down and then went back up to be with Silas and Timothy. So Paul's friends are up north. It's not his purpose to evangelize Athens with his team away from him. And he does not immediately go to the synagogue like normal. So that's one of the reasons we know, right? is because every other time in Acts that Paul goes to a new place, what does he look for first? The synagogue. He's looking for Jewish people who worship God and God-fearing Gentiles, i.e. people who are at the synagogue worshiping but may not be Jewish in background. And that's who the gospel goes to first, every single time. Because remember, when Lydia becomes a Christian, it's because he can't find a synagogue in Philippi And he just finds these women gathered praying, and that's who they evangelize to. And that starts the church in Philippi because there weren't even 10 Jewish men to have a synagogue there. Okay? So he doesn't immediately go to the synagogue. He's not there to evangelize, kind of. He's there to hide, you know, in some way. He's probably wanting to keep a lower profile. He doesn't want news to come back up to Thessalonica that, oh, you know, Paul's in Athens because there's a big hullabaloo there, right? So Paul's goal is not to be drawing huge crowds or talking to a bunch of people about Jesus in Athens. He is off duty, okay? And I love that because I have said earlier, but I'll tell you again now, that there have been times I have Eva at the park on Reston, and I see other people, and I'm like, I'm supposed to pray for open doors, and I say to the Lord, I'm praying for open doors, but like only if they really need Jesus, okay? Because I am too tired to just chit-chat if it's not going to get us anywhere. <laughs> okay, and all the introverts said, yeah, okay. Um, and it would make Amos happy to chit-chat all day long at the park, yeah. And that is why we are a team. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, But he is in this way kind of off duty, right? He's not looking for these opportunities like he would normally be. And I think some of the point of this year for me has been that as a church, we start to not think church is where we're on duty and then home is where we're off. Or does that make sense? But thinking, Lord, you have me here for such a time as this. I go to my workplace and my grocery store and the places that I have a relationship, you've put me in my neighborhood for such a time as this. So there is no end to the surprises that the Lord will open to us as we just go around our daily lives, right? There is no off-duty because I've said it before, but every Christian's calling is the same to fulfill the Great Commission, but our vocations are different. We're stay-at-home moms, we're empty nesters, we're retirees, we work at a school, we work at a hospital, we work as a contractor. There's all sorts of ways in which that calling is played out, but our calling is all the same. And this is the first time that we know of that Paul has taken a break from this missionary work in years. So, his spirit is provoked. Darn it. His spirit is provoked. While he's on vacation, the most beautiful city in the world. No. His spirit was provoked within him when he saw how full of idols the city was. Now, Pliny, the Roman historian, he's not a Christian historian, he's a Roman historian, calculates that there were 30,000 idols of gods in Athens in public places. This is not in homes where people would have private idols. This is just around the city. And one commentator described Athens as a veritable forest of idols. Just surrounded by idols. And so you can imagine that from Paul's perspective, there's two perspectives he's carrying with him. One is intrinsic to the core of who he is because you remember Paul describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews to the letter of the law perfect. He had been raised as a Jewish man and become a Pharisee. From Paul's perspective, the core of his religious, cultural, and spiritual background says you shall have no other gods before me and you will not make any graven image. You will not make any idols. Number one and number two of the Ten Commandments ingrained in every fiber of his being. So I'm sure there's a part of him that is provoked because he feels icky in this place. Have you ever been in a place that spiritually you just kind of know It's not quite right. I definitely have been. I remember um, when I lived on the Flathead Indian Reservation in Montana, we took a trip up to this kind of touristy town called Big Fork. And there's all sorts of shops there. And it's um, a really cute little place. But I remember going into this store. And I walked in and I said hello to the lady at the desk. And she said hello to me. And I immediately was like, hmm. She was super nice. Hmm. And I go back and I'm like looking in all the store, looking at everything. Everything's too expensive for me because I'm an missions intern. And I come back out and she just, I think she just said hi. And then I left the store. You know how you always feel guilty when you don't buy anything and you're like, I did not shoplift like hands out of pockets. <laughs> I don't know why, but I always feel that way to this day. But I, I remember being coming out of that store and being like, I think she's a witch. Yeah, it sounds very Monty Python, doesn't it? Um, But I, I don't know why I thought that. She was not rude. There was nothing like overtly creepy in her store. But I was like, hmm. I get back home, I talk to Jan, my mentor, who is Native American and who I was working under on the reservation, and she goes, oh yes, yes. That lady heard that I play the flute because part of uh, my friend Jan's worship to the Lord is playing the native flute. And I'm telling you, it's like you're hearing the Holy Spirit sing. I mean, it's just, it's anointed, right? And she said, Yes, I heard that. Um, She heard that I play the flute, and she said she wanted me to come and play it like for some kind of ceremony or something like that that this woman was putting on that was not, uh, that was of the occult. Right, she, Jan said she could tell I had some spiritual power and she wanted me to contribute that. And I was like, huh, she was a witch. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I don't know if we would, I don't know how to categorize that person. What I'm saying is, my spirit knew something was off. Like, almost immediately. Now I did not tell that lady, you're a witch, right, <laughs> no. And I would have happily, had I lived in Big Fork, built a relationship with her and talked to her about Jesus and all that. I'm not saying avoid that person or shame them. I'm saying sometimes we're in places and we just have a sixth sense about them and our spirits just say, be careful, be thoughtful, or you just feel gross. You're just like, this is not a good place, right? So I think that's what's happening for Paul. That's part of it, and why I think that is because of this intrinsic value in him about idols and worshiping other gods. And though, of course, he's been in a non-Jewish world for probably a couple years at this point, but there is no place so assaultive to his values as Athens would be, right? So I think that's part of it, but I also think it hurts his heart to be so surrounded by such God-obsessed people who are, he knows, are worshiping stone and wood, that they're sacrificing. Later in Corinthians, he says, when you sacrifice to an idol, you're sacrificing to a demon, not to God. And so I'm sure that like Jesus looking at the crowds following him, he's also grieved because he sees sheep without a shepherd, right? That they're Putting all this energy into worshiping all these things, but they're not worshiping God. So <laughs> I said, He's PO'd, but PO'd with compassion. Okay? And I think being PO'd with compassion is actually a very strong place to come from as a Christian. Um, but not just the PO'd part that turns into judgment and anger and bitterness, right? I always say that righteous anger leads to righteous action. So if you're claiming righteous anger, but that turns you into a real jerk, it's not righteous anger anymore. Okay. Well, we all have, Dad, so thank you for volunteering as tribute. (laughs) That's where I get it from, too. It says in verse 17, so... He is reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. So Paul's like, that's it. My spirit is provoked. He goes to the synagogue. He is reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. So now Paul comes to life as we've seen him so far as a missionary. He first, as always, goes to the synagogue in Athens. And to preach the good news to those who already love and worship God. So we can say that Paul's first step is to always go to those who are already open. Right? Who already have one foot in the door. That's important for us to remember. That's where he goes first. He also goes to the marketplace every day to tell the gospel to those who are present. And I imagine this is just small conversations with random passersby. Now this is as close as we have seen Paul be so far to the person standing at the Mariners game yelling at you through a bullhorn, right? He's going to a public place and anyone who passes by, he's having conversations about the gospel with. This is as close to street evangelism as we have seen Paul get at this point. Very interesting. Okay, that it's almost like the ways in which Paul and his team are sharing the gospel are expanding, right, or changing as the needs allow. I say this because it's important for us to understand that even though here at Hope, we believe we walk out evangelism through long-term personal relationships, that there are all sorts of ways to tell people about Jesus, and one way is not the right way. Okay? And that's important. That's important. So in verse 18, it says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers as well were conversing with him. Okay, so now the, the kind of important people in Athens, the philosophers, get interested. Okay, if you think of any Greek philosopher, Athens was either their home or became their adopted home. So all the famous philosophers, Socrates, Plato, etc. They all made Athens their home a few centuries before this. So it is again the seat of philosophy. Epicureans have this attitude that the chief end of life is pleasure, but not sensual pleasure, rather a freedom from like passions and superstitions and pain. So their goal was kind of this chill tranquility where nothing affects them or they don't get bothered by things. And I think the closest thing that we have in our pop culture reference is this kind of like zen where I'm so far above the things of this world that I don't get bothered by them anymore. Right? Epicureans believe that the denial of feeling would ideally lead them to peace. The Stoics believe that the chief end of life was rationality and self-sufficiency. So they basically are like, whatever nature throws at you, you can accept it because the rational world is what we live in. And this idea was that you could become so strong inwardly that no matter what happened, you could reason your way to peace. Um, That feels very, like, American to me, this I am internally Mm self-sufficient, right? Freedom and independence are not the same thing. I love the idea of freedom. I don't love the idea of independence. I think as Christians, we're called to something different. We're actually called to dependence, dependence on Christ, and I will say it, dependence on our community we are not meant to be self-sufficient. And so we have these two schools of philosophers coming to Paul, both looking for peace, but one saying, if your mind is strong enough, things won't get to you. And one saying, if your mind is strong enough, you can reason your way out of negative feelings. And we all do that, amen? We all do that. So some were saying, what could this scavenger of tidbits want to say? Now look in your translations. What does it say instead of scavenger of tidbits? Because it's fun. <laughs> what, in airhead? what an airhead. Are you reading out of the message? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Show off. Show off. Babbler. 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 OK. I Mm hmm. Okay, so this scavenger of tidbits is like an Athenian world for, it's like a, an Athenian turn of phrase, meaning someone who picks up a bunch of things where they want and then throws them back at you like an expert. It's kind of like saying, who's this hack who's acting like, they're a philosopher, right? I'm trying to think of, a, of an American turn of phrase that would be similar. But it's basically mocking Paul. Opposer. A Opposer. A a poser. Sure, sure. Opposer. Johnny come lately, maybe. Okay. Um, new kid on the block. So, what could this scavenger of tidbits want to say? And others were saying he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they use this derisive Athenian saying, the scavenger of tidbits, to make fun of Paul. I think another way of translating it is a collector of scraps, like someone who's cherry-picking, like Oprah, like cherry-picking the things in different religions that you want and then being an expert, right? But sorry, <laughs> it means someone who doesn't really know what they're talking about, those birds are having a heyday, but um, gathers these tidbits they've heard and repeats them as an expert. Apparently, this was not too uncommon a thing in Athens. You can imagine, if it's the seat of philosophy, you have people coming in all the time who are like, I have a new way of thinking, or I have the answer, or the different schools of each thing, right? And so, so much so that they literally, they have a saying for it like this carpetbagger, right? And one others comment that they've never heard these names before. They've never heard the name of Jesus. They've never heard about this resurrection, redemption, renewal thing. And this actually works for Paul because of the Athenians' curiosity and their pride in being the central place of knowledge in the known world, how could this guy be telling us something new? And it says, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we wanna know what these things mean. So this Areopagus is this group of six leaders elected by the noblemen of the city to rule on issues, just issues, of morals and religion. Um, In Greek times, they had rule of the entire city, but when Rome came over, they said, you can keep it, but they're just going to safeguard the morals and religions in Athens. So this is a really, wonderful place for Paul to be, sharing the gospel. I mean, for heaven's sake, you can't get anywhere higher. In It's like you get to present at the Louvre in Paris, right? You can't get any higher in this city. And it says, verse 21, which is where we will stop today, because this cracks me up, now all the Athenians, this is, by the way, this is an aside by Luke. He's saying, pst. and just so you know, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling and hearing something new. Which is, one commentator said, the most cultural commentary we ever get from Luke. He's like, now those Athenians you know. All they ever want to do is talk about something new. So apparently, Luke wants us to know that the Athenians' curiosity doesn't mean that they're necessarily, like, open to the gospel. But we can know that God uses the Athenians' culture, their particular thing, to open a door for the gospel. And it does tell us something important about this city and how God might use even people looking for entertainment, right? Because this is what it's described as in Athens, that hearing something new, that hearing a new philosophy, it's like going to the movies, right? They're not looking for life change. They're like, hmm, tell me something new about that theory, right? And then they want to argue about it and then they'll move on to the next one. But God is using this crowd, looking for entertainment, uh, this crowd of philosophers, for the purposes of his kingdom. God knows the culture of Athens, and he will use it to his benefit for the kingdom to go forward. He does not need to dismantle ungodly culture in order to work in it. And isn't that a relief? He can use the things we see as hang-ups in a culture to move his kingdom forward. And I think as humans, we really want everything to be put right. Amen? That's so wrong. Jesus is the one who makes things right for us. He's the king of righteousness. And yet, God's kingdom moving forward doesn't depend on everything being right. It doesn't depend on everything being in place. It doesn't depend on everything wrong being put right before God can move. He can work. His kingdom can go forward. The gospel can go out. And I think in some ways... That's disappointing because what we want is what the Jews wanted, which was for Messiah to come and put things right. Get these Roman jerks out of here and let us worship God the way we have for centuries. We could say that's right, but that is not what God chose to do. God chose for Jesus to come in the midst of a mess. And 60 years after he's born, that temple will be left not one stone upon another. He did not make things right on this plane when he came. And I think it's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? It is a hard pill to swallow. He did not heal everyone he met. There were many more people in Israel who kept on being sick than who were healed, even when Jesus was walking among them. It is a hard pill to swallow. It is. It is. Even when Jesus ascends one of the last things that his disciples ask him before he goes up to heaven is, Lord, uh, when are you going to restore the the lost kingdom of Israel? And what they're saying is, Lord, when is life going to be easy for us again? When is life going to be good for us again? You know, when are you going to get around? All great, Jesus, all great. When are you going to get around to what we want you to do? And I will tell you, the Lord is not interested in what you want him to do. And I don't mean that he doesn't care about the desires of your heart. I mean that his plans and his ways, his kingdom is so far above the finite way that we want things to be right. And this is a step where we have to say, like the disciples, watching him go up and being like, it's still a mess, it's still not fair, there's still oppression, I am not any financially better off, right? My kids don't have any more security than they had before. In fact, for the disciples and their children, Things are probably going to get worse. And yet, the gospel goes forward like crazy, like wildfire. Miracles, anointing, the Holy Spirit being poured out in the midst of things being very wrong. Can you come to grips? You probably can't because I can't. Can you come to grips with things not being right in your eyes? We can be grieved by them because the Lord's grieved by them. And we can do our best to contribute to what we think are his ways on this earth for our neighbors and for ourselves but you will never get what you're looking for. And if you're looking for the kingdom of God to come when all things are made right, you are waiting for something that will not happen. The kingdom of God will not go forward because of things being made right here. There's a lot of argument for the fact that the kingdom of God goes forward best when things are very bad and not right. I don't know that we need to jump into being thankful for the ways that things are not right. But I know that some Christians in China and Africa and et cetera would say, the gospel is real here because of the trials that we suffer. Amen. Amen. And this is meant to be, I hope for us, a real encouragement a real encouragement about what God can do in this time, in this place, what he can do in Tacoma and Pierce County. I don't want to hear anyone wishing that they could move somewhere where everyone is just like them, and they don't have to come up against these things. Amen. There's, there's nothing in the Bible, there's nothing in two years of being in Acts that says, Go where there's more people like you and you feel more comfortable. It just keeps pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing into idolatry and darkness and godlessness. And the gospel and the kingdom goes forward. So be happy about where you are because God has put you where you are for such a time as this. God let Paul escape Thessalon- like Thessalonica and get on down to Athens as far away as He possibly could, for a reason, for a reason. Amen. Can we pray?) <sighs> Lord, this is such a hard word. It is so hard to live in this world and to be a person of compassion and not bitterness, to be a person of love and not anger. To follow a Savior who says, Put your sword away. You're not fighting for my kingdom. Lord, our hearts hunger for righteousness, our hearts hunger for things to be made right, to walk in a place that feels peaceful to our souls where we're not afraid. And yet, Lord, we acknowledge now that you are sovereign and that you have us here in this time, in this place, with all our experiences and passions and flaws to be your people here. So Lord, can't do anything but just say that you're good and that we want to follow you. We want to become more like you. And so, Lord, we just submit ourselves to your will, to your timing, to your ways. Lord, you would you help us be people who see I don't know what you see, how things really are, Lord. And for whom, like Paul, the things that we see that provoke us, Lord, would lead us to sharing your gospel with all the more passion and all the more love, all the more patience and steadfastness. Lord, would we be Slow to anger and quick to love. Quick to hear your voice, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, thanks for tuning in today. If anything that you heard moved you or touched you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. So please head on over to discoverhope.org and connect with us. And if you'd like to support the podcast or even sponsor the podcast, just head on over to discoverhope.org giving. Thanks.